0: This morning we come to John chapter 15, verses 12 to 17. And and I just want to say at the beginning, this was a tough passage for me. It was a tough pat. My week of preparation was tough. Um, it was good, but it was more challenging, and it was not what I expected. I expected fairly easy and straightforward. And so there's a lot of like peripheral questions that come up and you're like, we're going to be like, what? How can that be? What are you saying here? And I I need to try to answer some of those, but but whenever I do that, it's going to take us afield from the main point of the passage. So just to give you a heads up that that some of that's going to happen this morning. So last week we saw that you are a fruit-bearing branch in the vine. And so you're called to bear fruit. Um, And you're called to bear lots of fruit, much fruit, more fruit, because that's who you are. It's your identity. And so because of that, we should be always asking that we would bear fruit. And Jesus promises us that if we ask, we will. God will give to us, guaranteed, what we ask for. And, And what he's talking about is the fruit bearing in my life, the reflecting of of his character, of the perfections of his character in my life. That's why James says, if you lack wisdom, the wisdom to live a life to the glory of God, not the wisdom of which house to buy. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the wisdom to live a life to the glory of God. If you lack that wisdom, ask of God, and he will give it to you. This, is, this wisdom is not, is not a, I will tell you something you didn't know before, but I will give you that inner instruction and wisdom of the Spirit through the Word to produce the fruit that a branch is to produce. So, we ask, and we bear fruit by keeping Jesus' commandments. Right? This is not some nebulous idea. It's been clearly defined for us in the Word of God. And to keep Jesus' commandments is to walk. It's not just checking off a list. It's walking in a path. And it's the path that we could say Jesus walks in. Jesus says, that's the path I walk in. So when we walk in the path of his commandments, we're walking with him. And so we're, we're, we're enjoying fellowship with him in the keeping of his commandments. Um, it's to walk even in the way that he is. We could use the picture of, of a path that Jesus walks in with us, or we could use the picture of Jesus as the path that we walk in. And so when we walk in his commandments, we're abiding in him because he is those commandments. You can't divorce his commandments from his person. It's, it's, it, they're together. And so we have fellowship with him, we abide in his love. Now those four themes. Okay, four themes we saw last week: fruit bearing, fruit bearing, answered prayer, keeping Jesus' commandments, the love of Jesus. They're all repeated in this next section. So, if you have the ESV, there's no break between what we did last week and this week. It's one big section. Um, Maybe there's a new paragraph. I don't know, but there's not a break in the in the text that they put in the NASB. There's a break. And I can understand both. Because it looks like we're just continuing on with all the same stuff. Which is why I was so frustrated last week that I couldn't get to this last week. Now I'm glad I didn't. Because as much as there's an obvious connection, we're coming to something new. Something very new. There's some important differences. So with that in mind, we begin in verse 12 of John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now I'm going to skip some stuff that's, that I had to say because it's one of those rabbit trails that explains something that we might wonder, and I don't want to do it here, but it's in the notes. The question I want to ask now is, why does Jesus reintroduce this specific commandment right here? Do, do any of you remember this commandment from earlier? John 13? where he says a new commandment. And by the way, this isn't just earlier in the book of John. This is earlier that evening, right? Because all this stuff is happening. Jesus is saying all this on the night prior to his arrest, on the night of his arrest, and the night before his crucifixion in the, early, in the morning. So all of this Jesus is saying, and Jesus already said this, maybe, maybe a matter of minutes ago. I don't know how long it took. So now he repeats himself, but what he said before was, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I want to just review this for a minute, because it's going to be really important, because Jesus is going to repeat this again. At the end of this message. So this is playing a big part in this. Uh, We know that love was not itself a new commandment. Like everyone knew, yes, you're supposed to love each other and you're supposed to love God. Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, when someone asked him, what's the foremost commandment? What's the greatest commandment? What did Jesus already say? The foremost is, and he quotes the Old Testament, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God." with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, I just want to ask you, are there different types of love? You no, know, love is love. Is love. Love the Lord your God. You meant the same thing then as it means now. Then the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now that that's interesting now because Jesus said he's giving his disciples a new commandment. And if it's not greater than those, what is it that makes it new?
1: Do any of you? Are, are you wondering with me?
0: Are you already answering it? That, that would be amazing. Well, wonderful. All right. How is this new commandment new? Well, we saw first that our obedience to the old commandment It's the same old commandment, but now our obedience to that commandment is motivated by the perfect revelation of that love in Jesus. In other words, what God commanded in the Old Testament has now for the first time ever been lived out perfectly in Jesus. Jesus obeyed that commandment. He enfleshed it. He embodied it. It had never been done before, ever. Now it has. Now it has. And so the love that's commanded is the same old love. But the incarnation of that love in Jesus makes it what? Makes it new. There's a second way. We saw that our our love for one another now is displayed in a new way. Because we live in a radically new kingdom context. The kingdom has come. And so when we love one another, we love in the kingdom. And what's happened in the kingdom is that we took a word, God took a word, and redefined its meaning. It wasn't bad in the Old Testament, it's just different in the New. And the meaning of greatness in the kingdom is becoming a slave to one another. That was not the meaning of greatness in the Old Testament. And it wasn't bad, it's just the way it was. In the New Testament, the meaning of greatness is becoming a slave to, to one another. And, and that is because the eternal Son of God took to himself the form and the station of a slave. Until that happened, the meaning of greatness could not be what it is now. And so the love that's commanded, it's the same old love. But the kingdom context for this love makes it new. You see, newness has everything to do with the date on the calendar, right? The newness of this love has everything to do with when we're living. We saw a third that the particularity, in other words, Jesus doesn't love everyone equally in the same way, he, he loves his own in a special way. And so that love that Jesus has for his own makes our love for one another, for all who are his own, the defining mark of the new covenant community. Okay, let me just explain that quick. There was a special kind of love. If you lived in the Old Testament and you were a true believer and your neighbor worshiped Baal, right? You didn't have the kind of, it was your neighbor. I mean, and he was an Israelite but you didn't kind of love him probably the way you loved your other neighbor who truly worshipped the Lord. But your love for that other neighbor, for the true believing neighbor, that that love could not be the, the defining mark of the Old Covenant community. Because God's love in the Old Testament, his electing love was for an ethnic nation in which there were regenerate people and unregenerate people. And so the love that you had only and specially for your believing neighbor, that was not the sign, that was not the defining mark of the old covenant community. Because God's electing love even included unregenerate people. His electing love was for a nation. Now under the new covenant, this electing love is for only born again, for the regenerate. And so now, our love specifically for each other, believers in Christ, that is now, because of the date on the calendar, the defining mark of this this community. That's it. That's what it is. And so once again, the love that Jesus commands, it's the same old love. We can call it old, but we can also call it new because of this new context of a new covenant community. So in these three ways, okay, the incarnation of the love commandment in Jesus, who lived it out, the outworking of the love commandment in the kingdom, becoming slaves to one another, and the scope of the love commandment in the new covenant community, in these three ways we see and here's our phrase the redemptive historical newness. In other words it's not new in as though God never commanded this love before he's always commanded this love but it's it's been made new because it's it's a redemptive historical newness. It's about revelation. New things have happened and so love takes a new shape and form and and, and meaning. Now here in chapter 15, Jesus repeats this new commandment without ever calling it new. He's already called it new. He doesn't have to do it again. He just simply says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now it's important for us to understand then Jesus is not just concerned that you all we all be decent to each other and kind to each other. I mean, anyone in the world can do that, right? This is what everyone, I see shirts now all the time, be kind, and I like kind people. That's not what we're talking about, is it? That kindness is a display of, of, of human self-promotion. What is the kindness? What is this love that Jesus commands? He is calling us to live lives. Now, get this. This is, this is important. He's calling us to live
1: lives that are only possible when we truly understand
0: this redemptive, historical summing up of all things in Christ. Incarnation, kingdom, new covenant. We say, oh, that's complicated, that's, that's deep. Well, Jesus was deep. That's what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying to his disciples, I want you to see the newness of this commandment because if you don't understand the newness of it, then you, you can't live it out. It's impossible. The living out and the, and the, and the understanding of its newness go together. So whatever kind of love you have for each other and however kind you are to each other, if it's not the kind of love and kindness that flows from from grasping this redemptive historical summing up of all of history in Jesus Christ, what is it? Therefore, Jesus is calling us if you take the next step, watch this. This is the important thing we, we begin to see. We're setting the stage for what Jesus is about to say. He, Jesus is calling us then to live lives as we love one another that are the announcement and, and the proclamation, whichever word you like better, of this redemptive historical summing up of all things in Jesus. So my love for you, your love for me, our love for one another, because we can only do this when we grasp the newness of this love, um, it becomes, therefore, by default, by definition, a proclamation to others of how all things have been summed up in Jesus. That's what, that's what this love is. By this, all men will know. Now we can appreciate more what Jesus said a little earlier. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. That you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So I'll just ask this question. We'll come back to it at the end. Is is our love for one another a constant announcement? Like an announcement. Like a bullhorn proclamation to the world of the redemptive historical summing
1: up of everything in Jesus incarnation, kingdom, new covenant. That's what this love is about. It's not about being kind,
0: as the world uses the phrase. So Jesus continues in verse 13. See, there, there's a depth to the Christian life. There's a, there's a beauty that, that Jesus brings to it that, that elevates it past moralism, that elevates it past the do-goodism of the world and brings it to a life rooted in Jesus, abiding in him. So Jesus continues in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now, I'm going to take a little detour here for a moment. And some people have asked, and maybe you would think, did Jesus miss the mark here? And we know he didn't, but some people think he did. Isn't love for an enemy greater than love for a friend? Jesus said, greater love is no one than this that one lay down his life for his friend. Well, isn't it greater love to lay down your life for your enemy? And the answer is simple, if we look at it. Jesus is not comparing love for friends with love for enemies. It's not his point. (laughs) He's not comparing love for friends with love for your acquaintance, or even for a perfect stranger. He's not, like, dividing up these different groups. Which is the greatest love? To love an enemy, an acquaintance, a stranger, or a friend? That's not what he's doing. His point is simply this. Greater love for a friend, because that's what he's talking about, greater love for a friend has no one than this that that you lay down your life for your friend. Does that make sense? So it's simple. Jesus did not get it wrong. It's nice to know that from the get-go, and then you have a way of understanding. You can move forward and say, well, what did he mean? So I think that's pretty clear. If I have a friend, and I lay down my life for that friend, that's the greatest love I could show to that friend. So Jesus is correct. Jesus wasn't the only teacher to say that, though. This was like self-evident. This was obvious. All sorts of ancient writers talked about the greatest kind of love is to lay down your life for your friend. So is Jesus just repeating what everyone else already knows? Is he reminding his disciples of something that is already obvious to them? That should be our clue. The key here is to see that Jesus' emphasis is not on the fact that this is how the disciples should love one another. As true as that is, I mean, he is saying that, but that's not in his emphasis. His emphasis is on the fact that this is how he has loved them. In other words, what did Jesus just say? This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And they might be saying, okay, how has Jesus loved us? Well, he's been patient with us. I mean, he's walked with us for all these years and not kicked us out. So they're thinking, how has Jesus loved us? See, they don't know he's going to lay down his life for them yet. They don't understand that. So when Jesus continues, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. What's he doing? He's inviting his disciples once again to understand what was not at all obvious to them. Yes, it was obvious, greater love, does no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. But it was not obvious to them that Jesus was about to lay down his life for them. So it's one thing for the disciples to be always laying down their life. Because John says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If you see that someone is in need, give what they need. Is that really laying down your life, literally? No, but... Metaphorically, it's the point. We should always be laying down our life for each other, as it were. But there's a big difference between that and when Jesus literally lays down his life for us, once for all. So only when we understand the nature of Christ's love for us, which is what Jesus is inviting them to do, only when we understand that will our love for each other be the announcement in your handout be a proclamation uh, always giving off giving off that good news right to the world of the redemptive historical summing up of everything in our lord jesus christ so that he is preeminent in the very loving of one another only then will our love for one another in your handout be the true living out of Jesus' new commandment. So the question is, are you living out Jesus' new commandment? Not, not, in a sense, simply the old commandment, but the old commandment made new. Is that what we're living out? And that's why Jesus goes on to say to the disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Some more detours. Here, because automatically, we in our works-oriented mindset or our fear of losing God's favor through uh, deduction in points and, and loss of merit, right? we wonder about this. And I just want to say it's the same thing we looked at last week. Jesus is not saying that we're going to be, you'll be my friend if you do everything I tell you. That's the, that's the feel that we can introduce here. In other words, he's not making his love for you dependent on your obedience. Dependent, as in, if you do this first, then I will give you my love. Well, then what is he saying? He's showing how our love for one another and the summing up of all things in him, as the one who lays down his life for us, are two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't pick up the coin without picking up both sides, can you? Right? When you pick it up, you've got both sides. You can't leave one side on the ground. And so they're inseparably joined together. What he's saying is this. I'll word it like this. You are my friends. You are the ones that I love and for whom
1: I lay down my life. If
0: you are doing. Not if you will do. Jesus is simply saying, if you are the ones doing what I command you. If you are the ones loving one another. Do you see how that, how that works? Loving one another, in other words, is not the condition of Jesus laying down his life for me. If it was, how lost would we still be? Right? Right? If, 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 if me loving you and loving you as he's loved me was the condition for Jesus laying down his life for me, I would be still a hellbound sinner.
1: But it is, it is though,
0: the necessary, indispensable evidence that he has, in fact, laid down his life for me and that I am, in fact, his friend. I I I can't I can't be his friend and not love one another, because I can't pick up the one side without the other side. So Jesus is simply saying, You are my friends if you do what I command you. What we should be able to see by now is that the point here is not just love, it's revelation. In your handout. It's revelation. Let me explain that like this. The point is not just doing what Jesus commands, though it is. Do what Jesus commands. If I said that, it would be true. But the point is more than that. The point is comprehending and grasping and then living out
1: this one great
0: redemptive historical fact of the summing up of all things in Jesus who laid down his life
1: for us. That's the point. And that is doing what Jesus commands.
0: But it's it's more than some of us might think of doing what Jesus commands. So Jesus goes on in light of that. He goes on to say this in verse 15. Now I, I think we're gonna we'll we'll bring this all together here. In just a moment, now look at verse 15 and see if you can already see how this is coming together. We talked about revelation just now. It's not just about doing what he commands. It's about revelation. It's not just about love, but revelation. Now Jesus says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now again, when you're reading this, you might be like, okay, I, think, I feel like we're jumping around. I feel like Jesus is jumping around at this point. Aren't we just talking about love? Now why are we talking about everything you he heard from his Father he made known to me? Because love and revelation have everything to do with each other. Because the newness of the commandment has everything to do right, with, with what love is. So, so we're going to take a little detour again. I just want to point out that we think of friends as equals, right? right? My best friend. He's my best friend and I'm usually his best friend, if that's, if that's the way it works. So we think of friends who are friends. They're people who kind of get along really well and they have a natural affinity and attraction for each other. So they just jowl. Best friends. So the fact that Jesus calls us friends has caused some people to speak of Jesus in inappropriately familiar ways. And they would say that it's not inappropriate. Why? Because they have a verse here, right? Because the verse says that Jesus calls us friends. So I'm not speaking inappropriately in a a too familiar way. One of the Political candidates during the recent primary came to our door, and in the course of our conversation, which I appreciated, he said he was on Team Jesus. And inside, I was like, "Oh, I didn't say anything, and I didn't show anything in my face, but it was like it just made me uncomfortable. I don't know what Team Jesus is, really." So today, someone might say that Jesus is his or her friend. Jesus is my friend, or maybe even if you're really spiritual. Your best friend, right? My best friend. Well, then let's just point out, when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, there is no mutually reciprocal friendship.
1: How do I know this? What did Jesus say? You are my friends
0: if you do what I command you. Now, can we turn that around and say to Jesus, you are my friend if you do what I command you? Of course we can't. We don't address Jesus as friend. So when we pray, I don't say, friend? That'd be wrong, biblically. We don't say to others, Jesus is my friend. Nowhere in the Bible is Jesus, not to mention God, ever called someone's friend. But here's the thing. Now, this is, it's a subtlety, but it's an important one. We can know that he is a friend to us. As one commentator said, Jesus is not an unfriend. He's not an unfriend. He is a friend to us. So it's not a problem to sing these words, what a friend we have in Jesus. That's not wrong. But here's the thing, it's not we who presume to call Jesus friend, but Jesus who calls us friends. What does he say? I have called you friends. And if he would have been dealing with our context today, he would have said, and you do not call me friend. (laughs) Right? Right? I have called you friends, and so it is Jesus who is a friend to us. By the very fact that he calls us friends, he is a friend to us. As we are the ones doing what he commands. In other words, brothers and sisters, we're still his slaves, but now Jesus calls his slaves his friends. And we're going to see a bit more of this because Jesus... Um, uh, clarifies what he means by friends. When Jesus says, "You, are, I have called you friends, he doesn't mean we're best buds and we go out and hang out together. That's not his point. When he says, I have called you friends, he then explains, because I have made known everything to you that I heard from my father. In other words, a friend confides, uh, a person who has a friend confides in that friend. And so all that Jesus means by this analogy of friend is that he has confided in us all that he heard from his father. That's what he means. Not all the rest of the baggage that we take to it. We're gonna, so we'll come back to that. But this is what helps us then to understand how Jesus can say, in so many words, that he lays down his life for his friends. I thought Jesus laid down his life for who? His enemies, Paul says, in Romans chapter 5. So how can Jesus say, I lay down my life for my friends? Well, because his friends are those that he has called. He called them when they were enemies. Because his friends are those he has chosen and those to whom he has granted this honored title. He didn't give us this title because he really got along so well with us. He gave us this title out of the sovereignty and condescension of his grace. That makes it more wonderful. I I, I don't want to be on Team Jesus, really. At least the way those words, the vibe that I get from those words. And and I don't want to be friends with Jesus like I'm friends with someone. But I, I want to be the one that he has condescended to give this title of friend to. And this warns us then against a overly, a wrongly, inappropriately familiarity with Jesus, one that takes away from the beauty of who he is. Jesus can say he lays down his life for his friends because that's just to say he lays down his life for who? For those upon whom he set his undeserved love
1: and favor. That's all that means.
0: So, let's be content. Are you content? that Jesus has called you friend. Let's be filled with wonder and awe that he calls us friends and that he is a friend to us. So far, now let's come back to the main point and we'll continue with the main point to the end. So far, we've been doing something that we might take for granted. We don't even know we've been doing it because of course we're doing it. We've been applying these verses to all of us just as equally as we apply it to the first 11 disciples that Jesus was talking to 2,000 years ago. So we're like, yeah, everything Jesus said to those 11, he said to us. And so everything he said to them applies equally to me. The problem is, it's not true. There are times, and in fact, this whole discourse, did Jesus have us in mind, this whole discourse? Yes. But did he have those 11 primarily in mind? Yes, because he's looking at them and talking to them. And so that's just a reality. And sometimes the primary application of his words is narrowed down so that it no longer includes you or me as it included those 11 disciples. And I want to just give some specific examples. So look at John 14 and think. Uh, He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And we saw that means I will come to you in the resurrection, in the flesh. You will see me. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me in the flesh physically after his resurrection, before his ascension. Because I live, you will live also. Now that applies to us, so this is where we get messed up. The last part, because he lives, we will live also. But Jesus did not come to us, and we did not see him. So there's a little thing, oh, I forgot. Jesus isn't just, t- I'm not there, he's talking to them. John 15, John 15, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also. Why will you testify? Why? Because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, shouldn't we testify? Yeah, we should. But we will not ever be able to testify the way the disciples did because we weren't with Jesus from the beginning. And once again, we're like, oh, that's not to me. That's to them. Think about that. John 16, verse 2. Jesus says, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. And we kind of just want kind of to uh, broaden that out and say, oh, that's persecution. Well, all he's saying is they'll persecute you. And we can expect persecution. But no, Jesus was saying specifically, you who have been members of the synagogue, you who are in the synagogue and have every right to the synagogue, they're going to kick you out of the synagogue. Well, he can't say that to us because we were never in the synagogue. Once again, he's talking to them. John sixteen four. These things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you. Who's the you? We keep putting you like, I'll just sneak me in there. Right? And we, sh- we should to a point, but you can't always. I did not say to you at the beginning, now who's the you? Because I was with you. We, cannot, we, we, we can't remember what Jesus told us. And the reason is because Jesus never told us. He never said it to us because he was never with us. John 16, verse 32. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. And he said you a lot of times. So these ewes are clearly just to the eleven, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. None of us scattered and left Jesus alone because none of us were there in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest Jesus. Now, what we, we can do is say, oh, I'm kind of like the disciples, and so actually I'm going to be scattered too, and I've left Jesus alone by sinning and, and failing to walk with him as I should, but that's not his point. So now, when Jesus says to his 11 disciples, I have called you friends, now we have to ask. We're a little suspicious. Who's the you? Are we right to say that we are his friends? And are we his friends the same way they were his friends? We need to see the primary application of these words is narrowed so that it does, no longer includes you and me, in the same ways that it included them. Listen again to what Jesus says. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father, I, Jesus, here in the flesh, I have made known to you. Here's the question. Did Jesus make known to us everything he heard from his Father? Yes, indirectly. Through who?
1: Through those 11 disciples, right?
0: Through the apostles. And so the emphasis here is not on this, I've, I've made everything known to you generally, and it's all kind of going to somehow get to everyone like us here today. His point is the privileged position of those first disciples as the recipients of Jesus' direct, revelatory word. When we say that church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that's what this is about. And this was during the days of his flesh, Immediately following his resurrection, what is in Acts 1, it begins saying that Jesus was with his disciples for 40 days, speaking to them of the things concerning the kingdom of God. He didn't speak to us, he spoke to them. And then even after Jesus ascended into heaven, Jesus continued revealing things supernaturally to those disciples. So we see this theme in other places as well, right here in this this discourse, in this upper room, on that very night, John 14. These things I have spoken to you. Who's the you? It's not us, it's them. While abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you. Now which you is he talking about? What do we all do? Automatically, the you that was just the 11 suddenly becomes the you that includes me. But in fact, it's the same you. He will teach you how much? All things. And bring to your remembrance all that I said
1: to you. Jesus cannot bring
0: back to your remembrance what he said to you while he was abiding with you. Because he did not abide with you. Or say anything to you. This is where, well, this is where we have today the, all the claims to uh, new and fresh revelations of the Spirit. Based on these verses, but it's, it's based on a total misreading of Jesus' word. And something that ultimately devalues the deposit of the apostolic teaching in the pages of this book. So therefore, Jesus was not promising here that the Holy Spirit would teach you all things. There's a sense in which that may be true in some other way, but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that the Holy Spirit will teach the disciples, the apostles, all things. All things. John 16. 12 to 14, I have made, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And we're reading it thinking, okay, I guess he's going to guide me into all the truth. And in a sense, yes, but in a sense, no, he did not do that. He does not do that for us. He says, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Has he disclosed to all of us what is to come? Direct revelation from the Holy Spirit? No. This was a promise to those 11. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Now, I just want to say this. If it was not, we were like, oh, I don't like this. I'm missing out now. All this is just for them. It's not for me. But here's the thing. Really, really, are we missing out? Really? Because if it wasn't for the exclusive application of these words only to Jesus' first disciples, if it wasn't for that, then we today could not know anything, much less, what?
1: Yeah, all things. Brothers and sisters, what do we know today? What do we know today? All things.
0: Or at least there's no excuse for us not to know them. Because all things were revealed to the apostles and have been committed in writing to the scriptures. In the Old Testament, God called Abraham my friend. And then we're told of Moses. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. What's the common denominator there? Why are Abraham and Moses the only ones in the Old Testament who are called at some level God's friend? Well, Abraham and Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, They were both the recipients of extraordinary covenantal, redemptive revelation from God. God making things known to them at specific moments in the progress of redemptive history. So Abraham lived and God made a lot of things known to him and called him his friend. Then years later, Moses lived and God made a lot of things known to him that furthered the progress of redemption. And he called Moses at some, he essentially called him his friend. So now when Jesus says that he calls his disciples
1: his friends, what is he signaling? The culmination of redemptive history.
0: This is it. I made things known to Abraham, he was my friend. To Moses, he was my friend. But now Jesus, the eternal word of God incarnate, makes things, makes all things known to his disciples. What does that tell you? Redemptive history has reached its goal. It is here. It has come. It is done. It is accomplished. It is finished. That's what it means when Jesus calls them his friends. That's that's it. This is not just some sentimental, oh, this is nice. No, this is, it's done. It's revelation. It's making known all things, not, not most things, not more things, but all things are made known now to these disciples. For he's saying that the disciples are the recipients of all the fullness of revelation that he has brought from his own father and the fullness of revelation in your handout is
1: the fullness of redemption. So now listen again to these amazing words Jesus speaks. Not to us but only to the
0: disciples. No longer do I call you slaves. Now, can we, is there an application of these things to us? Is there some level of truth of these things to us? Yes, there is. But the primary application is to those 11. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you
1: friends. What does that mean? It
0: means this. We should know this. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, are we on the outside now looking in? Not necessarily, because what was Jesus' purpose in making all things known to his disciples? What was the purpose? He continues in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would abide. And that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he would give to you. Now does that sound familiar from last week? It's the same stuff. Fruit bearing, answered prayer, whatever you ask for, you'll, you'll get. Those are, stuff, those are things we saw last week. But now, the, the primary application of those words is narrowed so that it does not include us in the same way that it includes the disciples. When Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, we can say, well, that's true of me, right? And isn't that the first thing we do? He, okay, I did not choose him, he chose me. And that's wonderful good news, and it's true, right? When Jesus says that to his disciples, his choice is rooted in God's sovereign election of these disciples to salvation from before the foundation of the world. And so, yes, Jesus could say the same thing to us. But Jesus is thinking more specifically, not of an eternal choice before the foundation of the world, but of his historical choice. I'm trying to help you see how to read this Bible, this passage, so that when you read it, you don't miss what's happening When Jesus says, you did not choose me, I chose you, the disciples are thinking, oh yeah, I remember about three years ago. Jesus chose me to be his disciple, right? That's what they're thinking, and that's what Jesus means. The reason that Jesus chose these 11 men and the reason that he makes known to them and not to anyone else All things that he heard from his father, why did Jesus choose them? Why did he reveal these things to them? Because he has also appointed them to go and bear fruit as they preach in all the world what they have heard from Jesus and what the Holy Spirit has disclosed to them and not to us, to them. And so what is this fruit then? If you think of what's the fruit here that these disciples have been appointed to bear and that will abide forever, what's the fruit here?
1: It's you. It's it's me. It's
0: this. This is the fruit. So John Calvin writes as the doctrine of the gospel obtains souls to Christ for eternal salvation. Many think, and rightly so, that this is, this is the perpetuity of the fruit. This is what makes it last forever because it's eternal salvation for eternal souls. But I extend the statement even farther as meaning that the church will last to the very end of the world. The church will last to the end of the world. Jesus said, I have appointed you that you go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide, that it would remain forever. And 2,000 years later, we see the words of Jesus realized. The labor of the apostles, even now, as we preach, the labor of the apostles is yielding fruit today. So let's just look at it like this. There can be no doubt in your handout
1: about the fruit these disciples will bear.
0: And the reason is because they did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. (laughs) Now that is so simple, I almost miss how profound it is. If the disciples had chosen Jesus, there'd be a lot of question about how their fruit would last. But since Jesus chose them,
1: there can be no doubt about the fruit.
0: Because he appointed them to go and bear fruit. Because he appointed them so that the Father would give them whatever they ask in his name. And more specifically, whatever they ask in accordance with their calling and appointment as apostles. See, there are some things we can't ask God for in Jesus' name that the disciples could ask God for in Jesus' name. Because we're not apostles, they were, and there were things that went along with that appointment and that calling that don't go along with ours, who are not apostles. Jesus said to the apostles, ask whatever you need for the fulfillment of what I have appointed you to, and the fact that I've made known everything to you and didn't do it to anyone else, and God will give it to you. In your handout, there can be no doubt about the lasting, permanent nature of the fruit these disciples will bear. Once again. Because they did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose them and appointed them that their fruit would abide forever. So J.C. Ryle gives the sense of Jesus' words like this. I chose and set you apart for this great purpose, that you should go into all the world preaching the gospel and gathering in the harvest and fruit of saved souls And that this work begun by you should remain and continue even after your deaths. Take comfort in the thought that I chose you as my friends. I chose you as my friends for this great purpose. To go and preach what I have made known to you. To reap an abundant harvest of souls. To do lasting work and to obtain a constant supply of grace and help by prayer. Now, on the one hand, (laughs) uh, if it wasn't for the exclusive application of those words to those first disciples, would we be here today? No, we wouldn't. What we're reading about in Jesus' words to those disciples is the guarantee of our own presence here 2,000 years later. So I'm happy. I'm happy to acknowledge that Jesus was talking to them and not just general thing to everyone. I see in it the promise not only of the first 2,000 years, but of the next however many years until Christ returns. On the other hand, there is a broader application of these things to all of us, and I'll conclude here with this. We're not apostles. So does that mean we can wash our hands of all responsibility to bear fruit? To bear this kind of fruit? Well, no, because the apostles are not here any longer. Who has now been entrusted with the apostolic message? Now, there's a difference. It's not our message. and we, we, we didn't get it through direct revelation. But we got it through those who received the direct revelation. Who has it
1: now? Who has it? We do. We have it. We've been entrusted with how how much?
0: All things. Abraham was not entrusted with all things. Moses was not entrusted with all things. We've been entrusted with all things. That Jesus heard from his father. And that he made known, not to us but to his disciples. So basically, in short, even though we're not apostles, we have been entrusted. You have a stewardship. I have a stewardship of the redemptive historical summing up of all things in Jesus. We know that all of history has been summed up in Jesus, that he is the culmination, he is the, the kingdom, the incarnation, the new covenant community. We know it all. We know it all. Yeah. But if we've been entrusted, if you have been given, what? If you have been given this climactic fullness of revelation, then why do you think you've been given that? Well, it's because we too have been appointed to go and bear fruit. Wherever God has put you. Each of us according to the measure of faith and grace that God has assigned. And we don't have the measure of faith and grace that the apostles had as apostles. Because we're not apostles. And we all are, are different. Paul talks about different measures of faith, different measures of grace. That's not an excuse to be lazy, to be fearful. But it's just a recognition that we'll all bear fruit in differing ways, in, differing capacities, in different capacities, in different places. Right? And he's appointed us, therefore, that our fruit should abide forever. Think about that. Indeed, that whatever you ask in Jesus' name, he would give it to you. Wow. We miss the glories of, of what we have, of what we've been given. And so on the one hand, we've been given a stewardship. And this stewardship means a sobering responsibility. You've been entrusted with all things Jesus heard from his Father. What does that mean? On the other hand, these things should be encouraging us and filling us with confidence and hope because we did not choose Jesus. He chose us. And he appointed us that we would go and bear fruit, that our fruit should abide and remain forever, and that whatever we ask of the Father, he would give to us. Jesus said to the eleven disciples after... His resurrection. And he said to the 11 disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. And this is not just about handing out tracts as good as that might be. Or even just about witnessing. Making disciples is bearing fruit. It's it's God using me to to produce discipleship in someone else. To produce Christ likeness in someone else. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, this relates specifically to, in a sense, the apostles, because there's teaching. We're not all teachers. They're baptizing. We don't all baptize. But then we see these words reaching out to encompass all of us when Jesus concludes. And
1: behold, I am with you. Who's the you? Always. Even to the end of the age. And so, I think of these things and I ask myself, are we bearing fruit
0: in the places where God has put us? Each of us, according to the measure of faith and grace that God has assigned. And we're talking about faith that is appropriate to specific roles and callings. We're not talking about a weak faith or a strong faith. We're talking about faith appropriate to various roles and callings. And we're, talking, we're not talking about God gives you grace to do tons and you grace to do piddly and nothing or little. No, we're talking about grace that's appropriate to specific roles and callings. So according to the measure of faith and grace that God has assigned, Are we bearing fruit in the places where God has put us, fruit that abides forever? Is that what we're doing? Are we asking the Father, in Jesus' name, that we would always be bearing fruit in the lives of those around us? Who are the people around you?
1: Who are the people around you? Are you bearing fruit in their
0: lives? And so now we're brought back to where we started. Verse 17. These things I command you, which is an interesting thing there. These things I command you
1: that you love one another.
0: Do we feel still like Jesus is jumping around? Like, wait, wait, wait a minute. How are we back here now? Or do we understand why he says this? Because intimately bound up with the fullness of revelation, all things made known that's been entrusted to us, and intimately bound up with our mission in the world. So revelation, mission,
1: is love for one another.
0: These, it's a triad. They go together. So let's put it like this. When Jesus says that we are to love each other, there's the first member of the triad, love one another. He's obviously calling us to live lives because this commandment is new. He's calling us to live lives that are only possible if we really and truly really do understand the redemptive historical summing up of everything in Jesus. That's revelation. So we can't
1: love without knowing. Love and revelation.
0: But then there's this. Therefore, Jesus is calling us to live lives that are themselves an announcement. If we can't love without knowing, then therefore, when we love, we're announcing. Do you see that? We're announcing and proclaiming to all around us, the redemptive historical summing up of all things in Jesus, that's mission. By this, all men will know, Jesus said, that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, is our love for one another? Is it just a being kind? Am Am I confusing being kind with the new commandment? Am I confusing a a fleshly kind of an affection? Yeah, I like you because you're nice and we enjoy With, with the love that is the result of revelation. Is our love for one another a constant announcement to the world of the redemptive historical summing
1: up of everything in our Lord Jesus Christ?
0: Are we bearing fruit in the places where God has put us, each of us according to the measure of faith and grace that God has assigned, fruit that abides
1: forever. Dear Heavenly Father, help me to be a fruit bearer. I pray that the result of my life
0: is fruit that has been born in the lives of people around me according to the measure of grace and faith that you have assigned to me.
1: So you have assigned
0: the measure of grace and faith, among other things, to preach your word on Sundays. And so I ask
1: that you would bear fruit through that. Lord, I pray that you would, you would cause each one of us not to be content
0: with with love that's no more than what what we often so often think of it. Help us to see that love is only possible
1: with revelation. That love can only be among us when we know that
0: we know all things because all things were made known to those first disciples and they have and it's all been put down in this book and now we know and now we can love
1: and now our loving can be the display of what we know and lord we pray then that therefore our loving and our knowing is mission in the lives of saved and unsaved alike all around us. Lord, please convict us right now. Convict us of, of, at times, how pathetically far short we fall of
0: the beauty of this calling. And yet encourage us, O Lord, that since it is not we who chose you, but you who chose us, that we can and will bear fruit, fruit that abides and remains forever in the lives of those around us. But make it ever more so, we ask, because you told us to ask and you promised you would do it if we ask. So we ask, we pray, in Jesus' name and for your glory.
1: Amen.